But when it comes to resistance and professional resistance, uh, that there is a huge opportunity once again for a small country, I think, to, to punch way above their weight and, and kind of uh, make sure that, that the aggressor thinks at least twice uh, before any kind of aggression. If you choose to, to, to conduct resistance, then you have an obligation to conduct that resistance with the best possible you know, organization, the best possible training, the best possible equipment that is purpose-built and designed to these specific organizations. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, you'll hear a conversation I recently recorded with Sandor Fabian. He has served as an officer in the Hungarian military's special operations forces and has written extensively about the subject that is the focus of our conversation, resistance. Specifically, Sander argues that resistance is the most viable means of defense for small states, like for example the Baltics, facing the threat of aggression from a larger neighbor, like Russia. And as such, he concludes that these small states should recognize that fact and adapt their military forces accordingly, something that would likely involve pretty dramatic changes in force structure, training, equipment, doctrine, and more. It is a fascinating argument, and Sandor makes it in a pretty compelling fashion. It's also one that, as we discuss, has pretty important implications for U.S. Special Operations Forces and for NATO. Before we get to the discussion, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Sandor Fabian. Sandor, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. John, this is my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I, I asked you to, to come on the podcast because of a couple of articles that you've written uh, for the Modern War Institute. You are a non-resident fellow with the Modern War Institute. Um, you know, I've read a bunch of things that you've, you've written and published elsewhere as well about kind of all, you know, revolving around this central conceptual idea of something called resistance. Uh, so we're going to talk about that resistance and I'll ask you some questions about that. But first, I think you know, I think listeners will be a little bit interested in your background, and I think it'll help them kind of understand your perspective if you talk about that. Uh, you are a retired Hungarian Special Operations Forces officer. Uh, you now live in Florida. Uh, you did your PhD at UCF. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your professional background? Yes. So uh, I actually joined the Hungarian military when I was 14. Uh, in Hungary, you, at that time, uh, you could actually join as a high schooler. We, at that time, we had a kind of... Uh, former Warsaw Pact type uh, military high school specifically uh, for, for young people where we went to normal high school, but uh, we wore uniform and, and, and in the afternoon we had all this, this military training. So I, I joined when I was 14, right after high school, I went to the Hungarian uh, National Defense University where I uh, actually graduated in 2001 as a long range reconnaissance officer, which is kind of a, again, Warsaw Pact type uh, paratrooper uh, unit uh, conducting more or less special reconnaissance, if you want to define it from, from a U.S. Special Forces task uh, perspective. And then uh, in my career, I uh, stayed within the soft community in Hungary. Hungary decided to build a special operation capability in 2004, 2005, and we built that around our 
long-range reconnaissance uh, unit. So I was selected there uh, to become the, the company commander of the first uh, soft uh, special operations company that Hungary had. And I was there from the beginning of, of the capability development, which we did with the support of the, of the U.S. military and especially the U.S. Army Special Forces. Uh, I was also the first officer who was posted as, as the SOF uh, representative at our higher command at that time, our joint operation uh, level command. And then later I served at the Ministry of Defense, the, the Hungarian general staff uh, as the senior special operations uh, officer uh, representative at, at the general staff level. And also during the last three years of my military career between 2014 and 17, I served at the NATO special operations uh, headquarters in uh, Belgium. Then I was uh, the uh, deputy, uh, I was the deputy of the uh, J7, the force readiness directorate at that time. And I also led the assessment and evaluation branch, which was responsible for basically assessing and evaluating all NATO uh, countries, special operation forces, and also the partner nations, special operations forces, uh, trying to identify whether or not those forces are meeting the interoperability capability and readiness requirements of, of NATO. And then in 2017, I actually decided uh, I, I want to try myself in a different uh, career field. So one thing I, I have to say, I'm not retired because in Hungary, you cannot retire only after you're 65 years old. So if you if you decide to leave the military, then uh, you basically resign your rank and and then you have to get out of the military. And uh, I decided I want to do something else. And uh, since I have done uh, a lot of research uh, when I got my master's degree here in the United States at the Naval Postgraduate School, academia seemed like a, a natural transition. And I found this program at UCF, uh, which is a PhD program specifically focusing on security studies. And uh, I was selected. I was I was uh, accepted by by the department, and that's where I I did my my PhD. And uh, since then, uh, I have been working for a big U.S. company called Lidos, uh, and uh, supporting the NATO Special Operations School, where I am. Instructing a couple courses, I also develop new curriculum uh, for for the NATO special operation community based on emerging threats. And uh, within Lidos, I'm also leading the the advanced studies team, where with a couple PhDs and retired uh, flag officers and colonels from the US, Canada, and, and the UK, we are looking into the future, trying to uh, develop and deliver uh, education and training solutions uh, for NATO special operations. So that's kind of my my background. Well, thank you for that. I'm 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 really excited to have you on. Um, well, for a lot of reasons, but in part because of you have a, a you know a unique perspective um, talking about special operations and special operations forces, but specifically from a from you know a, a NATO perspective, given your kind of professional interest in in the subject and looking at it from that perspective, but also with some experience in Hungary as the Hungarian military really kind of stood up a special operations capability. Uh, and you kind of saw the way that U.S. special forces assistance uh, can kind of play a role in that and, and what it looks like from the, I, I guess, the kind of the user end um, of that of that process. So we're going to talk about, like as I said, uh, kind of in, in our introduction, we're going to talk about resistance. That's one of those things that I think um, you and I were talking before we started recording that 
I think many listeners will have kind of an intuitive sense of the broad contours of what resistance means conceptually, but I wonder if you might um, kind of put a finer point on it and, and, and help to kind of define what, what do you mean when we're talking about resistance? Yeah, so resistance, uh, as you said, uh, usually means a lot of things to a lot of different people, uh, depending on their exposure and, and historical knowledge. You know, some people think about resistance uh, and they immediately kind of look back to, to the Second World War examples like the Forest Brothers in the Baltic States or the, the French resistance or the, the, the Yugoslav partisans. Uh, on the Balkans uh, against against the Germans. So basically, uh, in that perspective, uh, what you talk about is a native force, uh, usually organized ad hoc uh, from the population of a given country that is occupied by a foreign aggressor, is is fighting against that ocu- occupying force and uh, resisting. Uh, Militarily, but also including the civil population as a as a nonviolent resistance to to the occupying force, basically making the everyday life of uh, of the occupying force uh, miserable by again uh, violent resistance and also also non-violent or non-aggressive resistance, and also these uh, resistance forces are supporting the activities and operations of allied forces who are trying uh, to come to the help of of these resistance forces. What people don't really like to talk and learn from is the the more current or recent examples of resistance because we, as as a West, have been fighting against resistance forces, it doesn't matter if you like it or not, in, in, in recent conflicts. We've seen it in Vietnam, we've seen it uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and in, in Syria, where some portion of the population uh, sees uh, the, the, the foreign forces present in the country as occupiers, and, uh, and they are, again, aggressively fighting uh, against uh, these occupying forces and, and trying to wear them down and, and uh, basically uh, outlast them. Uh, and uh, and forcing them to to leave the country. So basically, uh, resistance is an active or violent and non-violent uh, fight against an, an occupying uh, aggressor. And there has been a um, you know for for I think anybody that pays attention, there's been a discernible uptick in the interest in this idea, uh, this concept of resistance in recent years. Um, what is it about today's strategic environment? Uh, that you think explains, especially in the United States and uh, and within NATO, explains that kind of that that increase in in the attention paid to this conceptually. It's very simple. The the recent tendencies, what we have been uh, seeing in, in the world and in the strategic environment, as you said, uh, both the United States and and Europe or NATO uh, has recently kind of refocused their attention from, from these uh, expeditionary operations and, and uh, activities or operations in, in other countries back to their own kind of doorsteps. Uh, Europe uh, mostly is focusing on, on their eastern border, given the, the recent activities and, and aggressive posture of, of Russia and uh, the recent uh, you know events uh, in Ukraine and, and also in Georgia. But you also seen the same uh, kind of approach uh, being discussed uh, in the Indo-Pacific area as well with, with China and the, and the Chinese activities in the southern China Sea and, and along the Chinese borders with regards to Taiwan and, and, and some other uh, areas. 
So instead of you know focusing on Iraq, Afghanistan, and all these expeditionary operations, uh, U.S. and NATO uh, is is really focusing on on great power competitions. That's the new buzzword. Uh, the the NATO and also uh, the U.S. Is seeing the rise of some spear and near peer competitors, and and the focus uh, is is shifted from these global war on terror activities uh, to great power competition. Uh, because the probability of, of any conflict happening on the soil of, of these great powers is extremely small, uh, small states started to realize their own importance in this great power competition, but also the great powers started to realize the importance of these small states uh, in this great power competition because the competition is going to probably happen or, or the major activities are going to happen on the soil of, of these small states. A couple other things that, that also are tendencies is studies, exercises, stable-top exercises demonstrated that it's extremely costly for the U.S. to, to project effective uh, power uh, and, and capabilities to these uh, countries. There is no real interest to maintaining a, a permanent presence of, of U.S. capabilities in these countries. Uh, and also the current prepositioned forces capabilities are not enough or not adequate to actually prevent a potential aggression uh, from from these uh, adversaries. So small states uh, got into a situation when they, they had to look at potential options, how to defend themselves for a longer period of time. And they very quickly realized that uh, the, the capability asymmetry that exists uh, along the borders of, of, uh, of Russia or, or, or China uh, will force them to think about some alternative approaches uh, instead of, of trying to defend against these, these potential aggressors on their own terms, meaning uh, in, in any conventional uh, way. So they started to look at uh, some alternatives at what you can see, especially in the Baltic and Scandinavian uh, states, but again in some countries uh, neighboring China as well, that they kind of developed and implemented what they call a total defense strategy or in NATO terms, a comprehensive defense uh, strategy, which is basically uh, means two, two major pillars. One is, is uh, resilience in, in peacetime and then resistance uh, in, uh, in wartime or, or, or during a conflict, meaning that uh, although they maintain their conventional military capabilities, but the majority of their national defense strategy is focusing on basically a after occupation uh, resistance, and uh, they uh, started to develop uh, tactics, techniques, procedures, and organizations to basically uh, implement uh, such a strategy. And, and you can see a, a lot of uh, organizations that, that being stood up or at existing organizations like uh, the Estonian Defense League and, and some other uh, organizations that were given uh, actually more role uh, in, in the national defense strategy and also more, more training. And from a U.S. and NATO special operations perspective, uh, the soft community started to realize that uh, the special operations have a major role in, in enabling, building and enabling these capabilities and, and started to also shift their focus towards, uh, you know, how to build, how to enable resistance uh, in, in this uh, partner and, and the light forces. And very recently, they, uh, they also codified kind of the principles and basic characteristics of these activities in a document called the, the resistance operating concept. So, so kind of this is the context where this resistance uh, idea is coming from and, and where it is right now 
in, in a very big kind of contextual uh, perspective. So in terms of sort of designing and implementing uh, a resistance plan for these small states, there there's sort of a, a number of different models that can be followed. And we see them across Scandinavia, uh, the Nordic states and, and the Baltics. You can, you know, sort of, if you have a large, uh, a, a mainly reserve force military where with a much smaller active component, the reserve force can be sort of the you know, the main element of this planning for, for resistance. You could also incorporate, you know, civilian organizations, which we've seen in Estonia, um, we've seen elsewhere. You have militias that sort of straddle the line between uh, a civilian and uh, and military organizations or don't necessarily fall under a, a department or a, mil- a ministry of defense. What is your take on on sort of what's the best model or is it really context dependent and environment dependent? I think the context and the environment definitely plays a key role. And I think these these different ideas of militias, you know, uh, reserve uh, forces and, and some other civilian uh, organizations like rifle uh, organizations, uh, you know, the, the Defense League organization and, and all those, those are definitely a great first step. However, I believe uh, that's that's not enough. And, and the logic behind me saying that is, my argument is it doesn't matter what you are choosing as a national defense strategy, you should make sure that strategy is being executed by the best possible way and by the most professional uh, individuals. Just like, you know, in, in a conventional sense, when you when your approach to conflict is, is waging a conventional war, you are organizing, training, selecting, and equipping a force that is... Uh, outfitted and trained the best way to execute a conventional war. So when it comes to uh, small states, and uh, they already uh, stated that uh, total defense and, and resistance is, is basically the main focus of their defense approach. But right now, as, as, it is, as it seems in most of these countries, they are planning to execute that resistance mainly by half professional or even, uh, you know, I don't want to use the, the word, but amateur forces. So the, the disconnect, uh, I believe, at least from, from my argument, uh, my, from my perspective, is there's a disconnect between the chosen way to fight and then making sure that those who are fighting is best prepared to that way to fight. So my, my argument is if you choose to, to, to conduct resistance, then you have an obligation to conduct that resistance with the best possible you know, organization, the best possible training, the best possible equipment that is purpose built and designed to these specific organizations. Because otherwise you are missing a, an amazing opportunity and and you are basically cheating yourself and, and the resistance forces. And and I'm not saying that civilians and this, this half professional, uh, you know, organizations should not be uh, involved. I, I definitely argue that anything you can use as a force multiplier should be utilized because small countries have limited resources anyway. But if, again, if you choose to conduct resistance, then you should do that with the best possible force structure, equipment and training possible. So that's why I'm advocating for something I call professional resistance force or professional irregular forces. So what does that look like in practice? Is it is it literally taking, you know, existing standing military force and and completely, you know, if not dismantling and rebuilding that back up, 
completely transforming them in terms of, you know, the way they're organized, the way they're trained, the way they're equipped to the point where they are purpose built for this, for this, um, for this particular problem set or, or national security challenge? That, that, that's a great question. And, and I think that's, that's one thing we, we have to definitely explore in the future. And, and we have to be brave enough to, to do experimentation, uh, you know, create organizations for this purpose and, and just experiment with the, the, the potential different solutions. Uh, in, back in 2012, uh, I wrote my, uh, my master's thesis on the same topic uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, with a great mentor, uh, John Arquilla, who is who is kind of the father of the net war and 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 some other uh, you know uh, visionary uh, ideas, and and we talked about this uh, that time, and and I looked at some case studies and, and tried to identify you know whether or not uh, historical examples of resistance were more effective when the when the resistance force uh, contained more previously professional, conventional military uh, trained officers and NCOs and 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 and, and personnel. Or if if the if the person now maybe came from from other backgrounds like engineers, you know, financial uh, experts who who just brought a different way of thinking, different uh, you know way of looking at problems, and again based on historical examples, and and they can be definitely kind of misleading, but that there is no clear line which one is better at this time. So I, I cannot put my my vote either you know one side or the other because. Having prior military training uh, definitely had its 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 benefits. You know, discipline, uh, ability to to conduct uh, operations under under pressure, and and, and uh, leadership skills, and, and and a lot of other things. However, I also uh, found that if you know somebody spent a lot of time in in the conventional military, his or her way of thinking, uh, obviously because of the the environment and the effects. Uh, of, of many years of, of one way of thinking about war and conflict and, and conducting operation is going to affect the thinking when, when those people are switched to resistance uh, kind of operations. So they, there's this saying, you know, if you don't know what to do, you always do what you know. So you, they, that there is this, and, and that's the expectation anyway, that in, in harsh situation, the military just fall back on, on tactics and, and muscle memory and then conduct uh, things according to that. So, Long story short, I think that's an, a, a critical and important question, and we have to find the ways to experiment with that, find the way to uh, to to find the right solution. Uh, some people argue that that would be the easiest and probably the most cost-effective just to turn uh, already existing military organizations and re re-equip them and retrain them. Uh, and some other people uh, would argue that. Uh, Probably bringing completely new organization uh, and and just forgetting all the the biases and constraints and restraints of, of conventional you know organizational uh, behavior, but also individual uh, biases would would make a professional resistance force probably uh, more effective. But what does so you know to to maybe get a little bit more uh, detailed and 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 real world. What would in one of these small states, um, you know, what changes would you see if they transition to a model like you're talking about, which is sort of fully focused on this idea of resistance? How would they, you know? How would training uh, be different? What capabilities would they have that they don't currently have? Um, you know, what kind of equipment changes would be required? So, 
this is not going to be a, probably a popular uh, thing what I'm going to say, but I, I think we have great examples of of organization uh, uh, equipment, you know, training, and we we have to look at uh, co- very recent examples, but examples of uh, insurgents, uh, examples of terrorist groups. Uh, examples of, of organized crime groups, because those organizations has been effectively fighting against the most modern militaries around the world. The Chechens, uh, Hezbollah, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, and, and, and some, some other, other examples uh, around the world. We have been learning how to fight these organizations and these entities, but we do not learn from them how to fight like them. And I think uh, if small countries wants to you know identify those organizational features, uh, the equipment, the tactics, techniques, procedures that need to be used against a potential, you know, aggressive larger country, then these are the cases they have to they have to look into. So, for example, as far as organization, I think from from the kind of hierarchical, you know, large bureaucratic military organizations, we, these countries need some some kind of flat organization with like you know, small units, uh, probably hundreds or thousands of them, and, and then maybe a single coordinating and, and, and command and control entity over over them or something similar like that. So it's a flat organization or maybe more like a, a matrix network organization that those are the areas where, where from an organizational perspective, they, they should look uh, look at and, and try to try to learn from. We've seen a lot of equipment you know, like improvised explosive devices, remote controlled, uh, uh, different uh, uh, capabilities, uh, some robots, and and but but even very basic uh, equipment and and uh, and weapons that insurgents uh, has or terrorists has been using. I think when a country looks at this equipment, all of them, for example, are improvised. But a country can make a professional. Uh, improvised explosive device. Uh, basically, you can you can mass produce it, you can perfect it, and you can purpose build it to to specific resistance. You know, operating. You can take a look at the capabilities of of uh, of the larger conventional militaries, and you can identify those equipment, basic equipment and and weapons that even mitigate the conventional. Uh, systems capabilities or, or make them completely irrelevant and those kind of equipment need to be mass produced also you know resistance is, is a very specific uh, kind of operation so you have to look at very simple things like individual protection you cannot look like a professional conventional soldier um, if you if you try to do resistance you have to have specific individual equipment specific crew served equipment uh, purposefully designed and built for for this uh, these operations and training again one thing we haven't talked about is is the urban environment resistance is going to be conducted if you want to have a successful resistance it's going to be conducted in in urban environment in the future for two reasons one is the population is there so the the best and easiest way to to do resistance is going to be among the population and the other thing is 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 Urban areas are the modern, uh, you know, jungles. You need difficult and rough terrain to be existent, to be uh, effective in, in resistance. And there is no more difficult and, and more uh, complex and rough terrain than, than man-built uh, urban areas. So the training that we are, we are planning, and that's probably going to be one of the biggest and most difficult uh, challenge, is 
the resistance forces must be trained in, in urban environments, in, in large cities. So the, the, the major change from, from the current kind of training approach, we have to move away from, from this flat you know, ranges where we are shooting in one direction uh, and, and we have to create the environment and, and train within the environment when, where these forces uh, actually going to really conduct their operations. So uh, you mentioned something that that uh, I wanted to highlight because it comes from an article that uh, that you wrote for MWI that we published uh, recently about uh, you know it, it really looks at the resistance operating concept um, that I believe is a document produced under the auspices of Joint Special Operations University, which I think and I think you'll agree is it you know it's important in the sense that it starts to refine our thinking and focus our thinking on resistance and and engage with some difficult questions and and start to kind of add some depth to the way that we uh, that we think about and plan for this sort of thing. But you mentioned uh, a handful of and I, I don't know that we'll go through all of them, but you mentioned a handful of um, you know, I, I guess I'll call them criticisms, but things that that maybe the the resistance operating concept, the rock, uh, might have missed. One of them was, uh, you know, the the case studies that that you mentioned that are used are typically you know World War II era or or you know early Cold War uh, era rural resistance groups um, and the need to look at, you know, instead of just looking at, at those as models, you know, because everything is, well, not everything, much has changed in the past, you know, 70 plus years uh, in terms of, you know, tactics and equipment and weapons and, you know, to the point where the entire character of warfare has evolved considerably over, over that, pi- that point or since that time. You mentioned we should be looking at the Taliban, at Hezbollah, uh, at at Chechen at Chechen guerrillas, Chechen uh, resistance to Russia from the 1990s wars. Um, many of those had a much larger urban component, as you mentioned. And there was one really good line in in there that I thought you mentioned is that you know resistance uh, is unique as an operating concept in that, especially in urban areas, it allows the resistance forces to essentially prepare the battle space in advance. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in, especially in, in say cities and built up areas? Yes. So uh, once again, it's probably not going to be very, very popular, but I I think we are in a very unique uh, situation right now, because uh, again, it's not just me who are saying urban is going to be uh, important or uh, is going to be the primary, uh, area for operations but you know the us and nato military and 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 civilian leadership has already kind of highlighted that fact uh, many times the chairman of the joint chief of staff general Milley talked about this uh the the shape commander uh in in belgium talked about in, in many times that we are going to fight in the urban environment so that's that's kind of a i'm not saying it's a fact but it's a strong kind of vision uh for for the leadership and we are in a unique situation when we are building the urban areas around the world. Humans are building the urban areas. And we know that we are going to fight in urban areas, but nobody seems to be you know, giving attention to the opportunities kind of uh, we are having because you cannot see any considerations for, for military purposes when you know, a plan for a building is submitted for, for approval to the city council or, or, or whoever needs uh, to a- approve. So what I'm what I'm saying is, if we and the small states especially identify that we are going to do resistance, 
we already identified that uh, if you want to do an effective resistance, it is going to happen in urban areas. And we are the ones who are building the urban areas. Then we are missing an amazing opportunity that when we are not building or, or considering some of the military requirements for, for this building. And when I'm, when I'm saying uh, that uh, building the operating environment and, and what that uh, would actually look like, I, I think it's, it's critical to prepare the, the urban areas for resistance operations pre-conflict. So you can do a lot of things, and, and obviously I'm not an expert, but, but I, I just have some ideas uh, which I'm, I presented in this article when, when, when we look at it. You can do physical things. You can you can have you know military specific or, or resistance relevant you know building codes uh, and, and requirements specified as far as what material uh, you should use or what kind of capabilities uh, or, or what kind of uh, you know resistance levels building should uh, should be able to meet uh, the roads, what type of roads, how you know wide, uh, what kind of weight uh, they have to uh, be able to. To handle and then you can prepare uh, a lot of things you can prepare the city plan in a way that uh, in case of you have a conventional uh, kind of force uh, occupying or, or coming into the city you can make sure that the city plan and, and, and the different avenues of approaches are designed in a way that it channels the movement or restricts the maneuver capability of, of conventional forces and providing uh, advantages for, for the resist resistance forces. You can prepare uh, positions, firing positions, or you can prepare uh, like observation posts along those those avenues of approaches that, that are pre uh, kind of prepared. During the, the, the peacetime, they definitely you know, serve additional purposes, but in, in case of conflict, they can be repurposed. They already prepared to serve uh, military or resistance specific uh, uh, purposes. You can build uh, again uh, structures that can be used as, 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 for example, dummy positions to mislead uh, the occupying force. You can kind of uh, create uh, exchangeable uh, road signs that, that again can 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 mislead the positions. You can prepare uh, areas as as the insurgents, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan, where you can you know, uh, plant uh, different uh, explosive devices. Uh, for them, it was a very effective way of operating, but it took uh, a lot of, uh, you know, preparation and, and extreme risk because it, it was very, you know, uh, difficult to, to hide people digging uh, things and, and, then, and then laying down the IEDs. If you prepare at least the places and the positions for those uh, explosive devices, the, those firing positions pre-conflict, it's, it's going to be easier and, and, and safer to, to position uh, your capabilities then. Also, you know, you have tunnels, you have uh, subway lines, uh, you have uh, sewers. Those systems can also be kind of uh, double-purposed when, when they are being built or when they are being uh, extended uh, to serve uh, the purposes of the resistance force. They can be underground uh, you know, escape routes or, or avenues of approaches. Uh, you can create underground uh, medical uh, kind of posts or, or, or hospitals and, and a lot of other things. And also it, the, the cities, especially the modern cities, are not just physical structures, but there is a lot of digital component. 
So you can uh, pre-position already intelligence and surveillance assets and capabilities, again, that can be serving only resistance purposes or can be like dual purposed uh, and, and switched uh, to a different uh, uh, operations or, or purpose when, when the conflict uh, starts. And, and also, you know, that there is a lot of wiring, uh, a lot of cables and, and things like that, uh, which can be, if a, you know, media company can pull uh, five cables underground, there is there is no restrictions on pulling a sixth and a seventh, which again, in case of conflict, can uh, be served as a alternative, you know, communication mean uh, for, for the resistance forces. So when I'm talking about preparing the urban area for resistance force, I, I think if we are not doing this, we are missing a, a great opportunity because instead of fighting with an urban area, we are given, we have a chance to fight in an urban area that we purpose build for the type of operation we are planning to actually execute. You know, the idea of sort of, um, remolding, country's military forces around this idea um, of, of resistance does sort of fly in the face a little bit uh, of, you know, this this notion of interoperability that NATO, at least, you know, rhetorically kind of elevates to this almost, you know, demigod status. Um, but we've seen from NATO's history that you know, interoperability doesn't always mean plug and play forces. You know, that's why in uh, when when the U.S. doctrine of airland battle came out, and we realized, hey, there are some, you know, in fact, quite a few NATO member states in Europe that don't have the resources necessarily to be able to uh, engage in this level of warfare with these, you know, exquisite and expensive platforms. And so NATO developed this uh, concept of follow-on forces attack. This is how other NATO partners who aren't necessarily engaged in, you know, the the airland battle fight will still contribute to it. Is you know, is there pushback? Uh, you know, within NATO circles, just from your perspective, because, you know, in, 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 and maybe, um, from your network, is there a pushback in NATO circles to this idea of creating forces that are so, you know, kind of out of alignment with, uh, with what the major NATO powers are doing, or is there, you know, a growing consensus around this idea that, Hey, this is kind of, you know, the, the new age version of follow on fast forces attack, augmenting airland battle. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, and, and this is based on, just like you said, on, on my circles and, and the people I'm, I'm talking, that there is a serious pushback uh, from, from NATO circles and, and uh, even from small countries. And if you recall, when I first uh, wrote my, my article specifically looking at total defense in the Baltic states, mm-hmm. two or three days later, you guys uh, published a, a kind of uh, reaction from a Belgian officer who, who argued that even small states need conventional forces uh, for several reasons, and and basically he, the main argument he he made uh, was because of NATO and because of this interoperability and and shared you know uh, responsibility and 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 common defense, and and small states still have to contribute to to NATO kind of overall force pool and and, and conventional capability, and and has to be able to project force to Africa to to Asia or wherever the, the need arises uh, as a as a credible NATO member. Uh, but my argument here is that still does not consider the, the national interest of, of, of the small states because, again, if we go back to those tendencies and, and general context, 
the prepositioned forces are not enough. We, we have the, the infamous 2016 uh, rent uh, war games that, that basically showed that, for example, in case of the Baltic states, uh, the Russians could overrun the three countries within no more than 60 hours. And as, as a response, a rotational base uh, battle bat battalion-sized battle groups were prepositioned by, by NATO and NATO countries in the Baltic states. To, to change that kind of uh, strategic context. And definitely it, it, it changed it a little bit because it, it showed the, the commitment of the NATO, NATO uh, allies, but, but it didn't really change from, from a physical kind of perspective because those battalion size units still would not add up to the overall you know, capability gap that much that instead of probably 60 hours, uh, it would take 72 hours uh, for the Russians to, to overrun those countries. So... And that's why uh, the, the Baltic and the Scandinavian state says we need an alternative solution because the conventional way is not going to work. And, and that's why they, they switch to the total defense and, and looking at, at resistance and, and hoping you know, that they can uh, fight long enough that those, those NATO follow-on forces is going to arrive. The U.S. projects uh, capabilities, conventional capabilities, and then basically... Uh, turn the, the conflict uh, back and, and push the Russians uh, or whoever the aggressor is uh, back back to their their own territory. So I I think again if you understand that you have no choice with the conventional military when it comes to your national defense approach, then not making sure that you are developing the purpose-built force to fight a resistance force, that's, that's a missed opportunity. And to have a conventional capability just to maintain that uh, contribution to NATO, I, I think the justification is, is weak, especially if NATO and the US also recognizing this, this need for resistance because they, they recognize that there's no way uh, right now uh, that you know if the western russian uh, military district forces decide to to invade there's no way to stop them uh, so th that there's going to be th the chances to actually repel them is 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 with counter uh, forces but but that's going to take some some time so i think if if the realization is already there then the notion of interoperability, interoperability or or sticking to the notion of interoperability should be also retaught re because you know these countries can be, and they can bring a different capability that creates an opportunity, but also contributes to the to the general defense of NATO and and Europe, or in the Indo-Pacific area. You know uh, maybe other countries, and then as I argue that both NATO and the US should incentivize these countries and reward these countries for developing capabilities that serving this overall grand strategic approach instead of saying yeah you do resistance we understand because you're right that's that's your that's your best chance but we also think you should not you know build resistance force instead maintain your conventional force which will be destroyed within 60 hours but then you will just uh, fall back on your resistance force which is now just uh, you know half civilian half pro uh, kind of uh, half-trained uh, individuals, but then we will come with our big commercial capabilities and, and liberate you. So, long story short, once again, uh, there are a lot of pushback. Obviously, there is no that there is no 
information that uh, somebody even considering uh, turning their military force or building a, a full-time professional irregular force. So this is this is something. It's it's still my argument on paper. Yeah, you know, I uh, I was having a conversation uh, recently with um, uh, a couple Americans and a couple Canadians who are involved in the training mission, well, training missions because they're separate in uh, in Ukraine right now. Um, and you know, I can't remember the numbers are. You know, it's in the hundreds of uh, forces that even the largest training and advising missions the U.S. and and the Canadians and the Brits have uh, in Ukraine right now. And we were talking about this idea of, you know, there's a ceasefire in eastern Ukraine, but it's not really a ceasefire. There are Ukrainian soldiers being killed by artillery. There are violations of it routinely. The OSCE has monitoring missions there that are documenting them. Um, we talked about, you know, the kind of the thought exercise of what if you took, you know, the, the say, thousand odd uh, NATO member service members who are all over the country providing uh, training and uh, and advice what if you just kind of embedded them in with these frontline units? What effect would that have on R- Russian operational and tactical decision making about whether or not to launch artillery strikes? Because that then creates this escalation spiral if there's the risk of of, of killing a, a you know an American soldier, Canadian soldier, British soldier, what have you. And we talked about that and said it probably would change their calculus. But what happens if it doesn't? Then you've kind of shot your shot, so to speak, and the escalation has begun and it's more difficult. It strikes me that resistance versus this, you know, notion of a tripwire force, um, you know, ha- is, is sort of a more scalable deterrent effect uh, potentially than you know, this idea of stationing a battalion that, let's be honest, is not going to buy you a lot of time on top of that 36 to 60 hours that the RAND study identified that, you know, Russian forces could occupy the three capitals of the Baltic states. I also think that, you know, with respect to the to the pushback, and I, I understand it to a degree because there is, there is signaling value to having as many NATO member countries as possible contribute to certain missions overseas. I, I understand that. Um, however, we don't expect, you know, small landlocked countries to play the same role in, you know, Operation Sea Guardian, the NATO mission in the Mediterranean as Italy and Greece and Turkey and Spain, the, you know, the the maritime nations with the, that are on the Mediterranean littoral. So there is this understanding that environment resources available things like this do do you know mean that we don't have the same expectations of all neighbor or all nato member states in certain domains and certain operations and this you know while it's you know maybe on a different level than that is still the same logic could still uh could still apply to this what do you think then what do you think would convince you know if you if you could have your way what do you think would convince uh kind of the powers that be within NATO, especially within NATO special operations circles uh, to sort of say, hey, this is this is actually a, a, a fruitful idea that could have a stronger deterrent effect. And this is something that we should encourage small states to do. Oh, that's 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 a very, very uh, interesting question, because to be honest, uh, one of my major argument uh, that I discussed with many, many people in many, many forums is exactly that, the deterrent effect of, of resistance. Because right now, you know, if you are country, let's say Russia or country X, uh, you can sit down in front of the computer and, and find, if you already don't know uh, because of your, your intelligence services, but you can find out the capa- conventional capabilities of any country, especially in, in Europe. So you, you know what you 
you know, you are up against, you know, the, the equipment, you know, the tactics, techniques, procedures, and all that. You train to that and, and then using your overwhelming uh, force and capability to destroy it. And that's it. But if you have a, a professional, you know, resistance force and, and the, the idea and, and the approach of resistance, I think it adds a lot of value to, to the idea of deterrence because now you know that, you know, even this small country has this very, very big capability as far as ability to, to, to impose cost, to, you know, basically mitigate your conventional capabilities or make some of them uh, really irrelevant. And that there's always this, this big argument, you know, how much we should uh, communicate towards, you know, a potential aggressor. Like, like Poland is, is, does a really good job uh, you know, organize this huge home defense uh, kind of reserve capability, and they they are really communicating to the world. You know, we are doing these exercises. This is our size. This is the tactics, techniques, procedures we are we are using. So so they are really playing into this. We have this very capable conventional military, but this, we have this very robust and capable uh, kind of force multiplier capability as well. However, I think why it's definitely a good idea it also potentially reduces a little bit of that deterrent effect because now you're making your capability visible just like you would do with the conventional capability. So if you show your size of your resistance force, if you talk about the TTPs they are using uh, and you know which cities they are, going, they are conducting training and, and what type of equipment they are because you have pictures all over the internet, then you are losing a, a potential opportunity to make your aggress, make your uh, potential adversary a little bit, you know, keep keep him in the in 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 the uncertainty and and kind of keep them off balance by not knowing knowing that you have a resistance capability, but not really knowing, you know, what does that mean, you know, how large is it, how capable, how trained, how specifically designed for for such operations, how specifically again equipped and trained for for such operations. So I, I think. You know, deception and operational security uh, from from the resistance force uh, perspective is is very important, and, and small countries has to kind of find that that you know fine line how much they should should uh, kind of communicate and, and make available for partners, allies, but also for for the potential aggressor, and then how much uh, they how much knowledge they they have to keep to kind of. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry, to exaggerate a little bit, you know, the, the capabilities and, and and make sure that the 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 adversary is 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 in the in the dark when it comes to that. Because right now, all military operations are following you know a certain kind of pattern. You you, you identify the units. If you see you know one artillery piece, you know that you have to look for four more because that specific country has five artillery pieces within one unit and so on. But when it comes to resistance and professional resistance. Uh, that there is a huge opportunity once again for a small country, I think, to to punch way above their weight and and kind of uh, make sure that that the aggressor thinks at least twice uh, before any kind of aggression. So within the the U.S. military, as as you noted in uh, in your most recent article for MWI, uh, it's the the U.S. Army Special Forces that are sort of the most logical, you know, conduit. Um, 
between the U.S. military and potentially these resistance forces, uh, they are, you know, to a considerable degree embracing this idea of resistance. It, it's sort of, um, again, as you noted, a return to the uh, special forces roots of unconventional warfare. What uh, what changes would you recommend in terms of the way maybe uh, army special forces specifically? You know, if you had if you had ten minutes in a room with a tenth group commander, uh, the tenth special forces group, which is focused on uh, on Europe, ten minutes to kind of describe to him, hey, here's how I think you could really have an impact in terms of shaping uh, this concept of resistance in small states in in the various partners uh, in in Europe that you work with. What would you tell him? I think. What the, the U.S. Uh, special forces has to avoid is is to really you know go back to the unconventional warfare doctrine and this uh, romanticized idea of of you know building uh, insurgents in the jungle and then uh, trying to overthrow a government because again 21st century resistance is going to be much more different and and. Again, the, the, the unconventional warfare doctrine is a very, very good foundation uh, as far as principles and general characteristics and, and, and requirements. But I think they have to uh, move beyond that. Uh, one thing is, once again, it's going to be urban. So the U.S. Special Forces must be able to focus on urban capabilities. And urban capabilities without the, the normal gadgets, you know, the equipment uh, they have, uh, because they should not look like soldiers or, or soldiers in the conventional uh, kind of uh, view and understanding. So they definitely need new training. They definitely need new equipment that would you know enable them to be effective enablers and, and supporters for the local resistance forces. Uh, they have to uh, probably need some, some new organization. And again, uh, this is something probably many people will uh, attack me immediately. Maybe, you know, at this time, uh, it, it's a good time to look at the, the traditional soft uh, organization of the 12-man ODA and, and, and look at, you know, what the requirements of, of resistance, especially pre-conflict built resistance is, and, and also the urban environment, the, the 21st century digital uh, environment. Uh, and again, uh, th- there might be a time, but but again, just like your question earlier, you know, should we turn the 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 U.S. Army SFODA uh, into a more resistance-specific new organization, capitalizing on the already existing capabilities and knowledge, or maybe we need some kind of new capability built built from scratch? That's something that uh, we we have to again experiment with, and and we have to. We make sure we, we, we make you know bold decisions and and because there is always this fight you know for for the resources and and for relevance. So it's I think uh, you know many organizations the U.S. Army soft will will always try to to prove that we are ready and capable of doing this. But uh, again, we, we have to be you know careful and, and we have to be bold to make sure that again we are aligning the right capability against uh, these these tasks. But. It, it, again, it, it's going to be a, a lot of discussion because you usually like to use capabilities that you already have because that's require less resources and less time and just repurpose them. Uh, so different training or or a revised training with a lot of added activity in, in urban environment, but not I'm not talking about CQB, close quarter battle or, or room cleaning, but, you know, moving uh, stealthy. Uh, working with with already established organizations, uh, 
new organization potentially definitely new individual level equipment you know uniform uh, weapons uh, and, and and different surveillance equipment and everything else and and the training regime and, and the exercising uh, they have to go to the urban areas and and conduct training there uh, just like the the resistance forces of the small states so i think we we have to do a a huge investment uh, in the training facilities and the infrastructure uh, when it comes to to soft training yeah, uh, yet another article that uh, that you wrote for uh, for MWS several months ago was this idea of the the schoolhouse at Swick, the uh, Army's uh, JFK Special Warfare Center and School, um, kind of adapting that, updating it really to incorporate urban environments to a greater degree in in um, in soft training and special forces training, Army special forces training specifically. Well, Sandor, I think we're going to leave it there. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. It's a topic that I'll, I'll be honest with you um, before. Uh, we started publishing, you know, some of some of your articles. I hadn't given a lot of thought to, um, you know, I kind of watched, as I said, this this, uh, you know, kind of constant uptick in interest in the idea of resistance. You saw it talked about every every now and then, but um, you know, I, I've become really kind of fascinated by the subject. So I'm I'm thrilled that you were able to come on the podcast, talk about it, um, and and have kind of a what I hope will be a thought provoking conversation for uh, for our listeners to uh, to hear. So thank you very much. Yeah. I- very much appreciate the opportunity john and uh thank you hey thank you so much for listening to the mwi podcast one last thing if you aren't yet subscribed to the podcast you can find it wherever you get your podcasts and if you have a second please leave a rating or give it a review which really does help us reach new listeners thanks again Mm -hmm.